This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Okay, it's, it, it's, a, it's a real pleasure to welcome uh, Steve Van Ryan. Steve leads a church of, called Jubilee Ch- uh, Church in Cape Town. Uh, it's, it's now multi-site across the city. Uh, it's some hundreds, uh, over a thousand perhaps, I'm, I'm not sure, over a thousand. Uh, so it's absolute privilege to have Steve. Steve uh, speaks uh, widely. He's part of the Advanced Global Team. He's uh, s- spoken to my life, challenged me, and I know that he's going to uh, speak into your life and challenge you. So we're just going to pray for open hearts and pray for God to be with Steve. Lord, we thank you for Steve. Thank you for his heart for not just only Cape Town and South Africa, but the nations. Lord, thank you for his love of your word. Thank you that he he sits under your word. He's preaching to himself as before he's preaching it to others. But I pray, Lord that you would speak to us really strongly, clearly, powerfully through Steve this morning. I pray that you'd pour out your spirit upon him, that you'd give him real grace to speak into our lives. And I pray for open hearts for us to receive all that you have for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's put hands together. Welcome, Steve. Well, good morning, everybody. It's really great to be here. And uh, little did I know that I was coming to a town where uh, the famous and influential were going to be because uh, last night we went out for a meal. Howard said, oh, there's a literature festival going on. Do do, do you want to kind of pop in? And we're like, yeah, well, why not? I've got uh, a guy on the team who's really into literature, so I thought I could take some nice photos of the different bookstores and and send it to him. And we just kind of moseying around the tent where... Uh, there a couple of authors signing things, and there was one kind of long queue for a person. I didn't really recognize the uh, the author, and so I just carried on to, to a further part of the tent where, uh, lo and behold, Nigella Lawson was there <laughs> and signing, and it was like right at the end of the thing, and I, I was the penultimate person to get the book signed. And my wife's a big fan, so it was like four, I've, I've got a photo to, to, to prove this, four Anna love Nigella, which I just Whoa, like, isn't it so cool that she loves my wife? That's, that's, that's just amazing. <laughs> I just thought, what a, what a great town to come in. Yeah. And Hillary Clinton tonight, I mean, goodness me, what a, what a great place to be. If you've got your Bibles, could you please turn to uh, Luke chapter 7, Luke chapter 7. We are going to be reading one of the great encounters uh, in the gospel this morning, and uh, please join with me. Luke chapter 7 and verse 36. Luke chapter 7 and verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's home. 
So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. She stood behind him at his feet weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay them back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sin? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray as we come to your word this morning, we pray that you would be with us. We pray that you would speak to us. We pray, Father God, that we would hear your voice and your instruction through this passage. And all God's people said, Amen. Now, our encounter already begins with Jesus being invited uh, for a meal by a man named Simon. Now, Simon was the kind of guy that any mom would want their daughter to meet. He was a Pharisee, which means he was God-fearing. He was a law-abiding citizen. He was a homeowner, which in Charltonham, just like in that day, man, you had to be successful, right? You don't get a home without truckloads of cash. So he's, 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 he's law-abiding citizen. He's a homeowner. He's successful. He's hospitable. He's invited Jesus and other guests uh, to his home. Not only that, he's open to Jesus. Other people have turned their back on Jesus. Other people weren't interested in Jesus. Not our Simon. Our Simon had uh, invited Jesus to his own home. And he had the kind of home where somebody just off the street could pop in. You know, the kind of people that they just really have an open home, they're open to community, and, and people can just rock up and come in, and then other people where it's just like on lockdown, and, and you can only come in if you've been invited like, uh, you know, three months in advance, and maybe we'll consider that maybe you might just be able to come in, but not our Simon. Our Simon had a home where, where somebody could just come uh, off the street. He was a legend, he was kind, he was hospitable, just really a, a fantastic guy, the kind of guy that Jesus didn't mind having uh, a meal with. Now, our encounter, in fact, begins with Jesus uh, reclining on the floor having supper. It's just very interesting to note that the time and the culture in which God chose to become flesh 
and dwell amongst us was the point at which people used to lie down or recline while eating. Ladies, can I just humbly suggest to you that if your man was ever lying down, say watching that all-important game, and you were to bring food to him at that point, he would feel very strong connections with Jesus. Because the time and the culture that Jesus came in, they, 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 they lay down and eat. And, and guys, we, we've just been uh, mocked, have we not? It's been couch potatoes. But, but little do people know that we were actually just modeling ourselves on Jesus all, 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 all along. Now, 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 at least I abuse the passage. Let me make it clear. Jesus wasn't lying down looking at a glowing box. Uh, he was lying down actually reclining, looking at Simon with his, his, his body and legs and feet behind him. He was engaging Simon as he was eating when all of a sudden something quite dramatic happens. A woman enters the room behind Jesus. Jesus doesn't see her. He's, he's reclining. He's looking at Simon. And a woman appears. And she, she is no ordinary woman. She is a very attractive woman. She is a notorious woman in the town. She is a woman that took part in the world's oldest profession. This woman is a prostitute. This woman would regularly undress and perform sexual favors for complete strangers in exchange for money. This was any parent's worst nightmare for their daughter to end up in an industry like this. For an upstanding member of the community like Simon, this was the last person in the world that he wanted to be associated with. Simon had worked long and hard and made the right moral choices to ensure that he had a good reputation. And he certainly didn't want his good reputation ruined and contaminated by this immoral woman. But before Simon has time to intervene and remove her from his property, something quite extraordinary happens. This woman, this notorious woman, this, this wayward woman, begins to weep and weep. In fact, Luke tells us that she wept so much that she actually wetted Jesus' feet so significantly that it required to be dried. So, so we, are, we are talking about this lady crying and crying, weeping and weeping, and Jesus' feet becoming wet. But really what she does next is actually utterly scandalous in the culture. She actually, she actually kneels down and lets down her hair and begins to dry Jesus' feet while kissing his feet repeatedly. In this time and in this culture, a woman's hair was her glory. And a woman would grow her hair for her husband's enjoyment. She would grow her hair, but keep her hair tied up until the wedding night, where she would let down her hair for her new husband's enjoyment. For a single woman to let down her hair for a single man in a public setting 
in this time and in this culture was utterly scandalous. It was utterly scandalous. And as Simon sees these shocking events unfold in his home, he becomes upset. He becomes annoyed. He becomes frustrated. But what is very interesting from this passage is that the source of Simon's anger and displeasure isn't actually focused on this wayward woman. It's actually focused on Jesus. Simon privately thinks to himself, if this guy were the spiritual leader he was cracked out to be, if he was this great prophet that other people claimed him to be, he would know what kind of woman this is. And he wouldn't let her near him. He wouldn't allow her to touch him if he truly had the spiritual discernment everybody claimed he has. And just as Simon is thinking, Jesus doesn't know what's going on, Jesus interrupts and quickly tells a story that shows us that not only does he know the true identity of this woman, but actually more than that, he knows Simon's very private thoughts. Jesus says to Simon, I have a story to tell you. And, and, and Simon says, go ahead. And Jesus tells a short story, a short parable, and the parable is this. Two people owe money to moneylenders. One owes nearly two years' worth of wage, the other two months. Both are unable to pay their debts. Both are released from their debts by the moneylender. And Jesus asks Simon, which one of the two do you think loved the moneylender more? And Simon answers, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt cancelled. And Jesus answers, you have judged correctly. You have judged correctly. And in, in telling just a very short story, Jesus completely turns the table on Simon. Prior to the story, Simon was privately evaluating Jesus. But through Jesus telling the short story, he immediately turns the tables on Simon and this wayward woman. He tells a story that would cause the audience that was there that evening, and indeed us this morning, to compare and contrast Simon and the wayward woman. So this morning what I want to do is I want us just to, to think about Simon and the wayward woman. And I want us to think about their, their beliefs. And then I want us to think about their behavior. Let, let's begin with their beliefs. I want to suggest to you that they had, there were three different areas where they had a different belief uh, structure. The first is what I'm calling good verse God. Simon was kind of interested in, in, in Jesus. He, he kind of thought Jesus was a good kind of guy, the kind of guy he wanted to invite back home to, to kind of listen to. He considers him kind of a teacher, verse 40, a, a prophet, verse, verse 39. He, he's kind of spiritually attracted to Jesus in some way, but, 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 but he, he stops short of God. He stops short of God. No, 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 not so this woman. This woman has no problem breaking into this room and really expect, uh, expressing her love and devotion for Christ. She's like crossed the line. She, she, she knows that this guy isn't like a quasi-teacher, quasi-prophet. No, no, no. He, he, he's the true Messiah. He, he, he's the Lord of glory. And, and she doesn't mind publicly expressing that. 
Not, not, not so Simon. Simon's more guarded. It's like, yeah, this is kind of interesting. I suppose we get, we, we should look at that. We, we should kind of evaluate that. It, Jesus is good for Simon, but Jesus isn't God. Of course, we know that C.S. Lewis says the holding Jesus as good is the one position that you can't settle on, right? Mm. Lewis says, having studied the Gospels, he says essentially there are three things that Jesus could plausibly be if you read the Gospels. One, he is a liar. He is intentionally lying about his true identity uh, in, in order to deceive us. Or he is a lunatic. He himself is deluded and deceived. He really believes he's God, but he's not. Or, Lewis says, he is the Lord of glory. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord of glory. Lewis says the one thing he cannot be is a good teacher. Because good teachers don't go around claiming to be God. They're either lying, they're either a lunatic, or they are telling the truth. But the category of, well, he's a really nice guy, he's really good. You never give to somebody who makes God's claims. This, this, this wayward woman, she, she knew the true identity of Jesus. The next thing that we see in their belief system is what I'm calling bankrupt versus open for business. A number of years ago, I was doing a ministry trip that involved me being in uh, Dubai uh, on a Friday and then Mumbai on the, the, the Sunday. Churches in Dubai meet on a Friday and then obviously uh, in Mumbai in India on the Sunday. So just within a weekend, I was in two different major cities. And if you've ever been to Dubai, you just know Dubai is like the bling capital of the world. You know, just like, uh, do, do you want to go snow skiing in a desert? You can do that in Dubai. And it's just like, everything's bigger and better and, and, and amazing uh, uh, malls, shopping malls and golf courses and and uh, the tallest building in the world. Just a, just an incredible place. And you, you can go to Dubai and just think, well, this is totally caught up with, with, with wealth and, and opulence. This, 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 this is phenomenal. And then you go to Mumbai and... Mumbai is like crazy, a city just truly the city that never sleeps, uh, just uh, unbelievable. Out at 11 o'clock on a Sunday night and they're just like loads of kids on the road <laughs> at 11 p.m. on a Sunday night. It was just, just, just like crazy. But if you're going to Mumbai, you don't really have to look very far until you find a beggar. Like if you want to find a beggar in Mumbai, you don't, you don't have to go very far at all. And so when you look at the two cities, you think, which, 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 which city is bankrupt? Which, which city is really in trouble? Which is the city that really needs help? You go, oh, of course Mumbai needs it. There are loads of beggars there. This is really poor. They need help. But look at, look, look at, look at Dubai, the, the, the center of opulence. But actually, the story is uh, quite different at the time when I visited around 2008, around the credit crunch. Because the Sheikh of Dubai, Sheikh Mohammed, was building the tallest building uh, in the world, uh, ready for his own glory. It was going to be called the Burj Mohammed. Uh, that, that was going to be the name of the building. And then the credit crunch hit, and it hit Dubai massively. So massively that they ran out of money. And they couldn't actually finish the tallest building that they were building in the world for the glory of their shake. So when you run out of money, what do you do for a big building project? You've got to, you've got to go and ask a mate, can, can, can you help me? I've run out of money. I was building a house and I've hit hard times. I need some help. I just need, I've got a cash flow problem here. And so they went up the road to Abu Dhabi and said, hey, we're, we're, 
we've been hit by the credit crunch. We need some help. We need to finish this building. And the guy was awesome. He said, it's like, great, sure, no problem. No problem at all. Here's the money to finish the building. Just one condition. What, what's the condition? Name it after me. <laughs> and my friends in Dubai said that the opening of that building was the saddest day in Sheikh Mohammed's life. He was the saddest person in the world. He had built a building for his own glory. And he had to rename it. They, they, they said there were signs all around Dubai pointing to what was going to be uh, the Burj Muhammad and then had to be changed to the Burj Khalifa. And friends, what's happening between Mumbai and Dubai is exactly what's playing out here in Luke 7. Because you look at the two stories and say, please tell me who's the morally bankrupt person here. And it's like, oh, absolutely no problem. That, there, there, there's that woman, there's that wayward woman. I'm, I'm, I'm so glad Jesus came because people like her really need help. But not our Simon. Our Simon's got it all together, right? He, he's, he's totally in control. He, he doesn't need this. She needs this. Not him. He, he's a homeowner. He's a Pharisee. He's law-abiding. He's successful. He's kind of open to Jesus. He's not bankrupt, right? Well, let's look a little bit more carefully. Because I want to suggest to you that Simon's got the veneer of having it all together. Personal success. Seeming openness to Jesus. But when we begin to look a little bit deeper, when we have a more closer inspection, we find actually something quite different. Simon isn't actually in awe of Christ. He actually evaluates Christ. He doesn't worship Him. And the reason why he doesn't worship Him or isn't in awe of Him is because he doesn't feel any need for Him. And he doesn't feel any need for Him because he is assuming that he's not spiritually bankrupt in need of a Savior. And friends, the key to understanding this whole passage is to understand the short parable that Jesus told. Because Jesus tells a story about two individuals. But the thing that unites the two individuals in the story that Jesus tells is that both couldn't pay their debts back. Both were bankrupt. He tells a story not where one person was bankrupt and the other wasn't. No, he told a story that both were bankrupt. Sure, one had a bigger debt than the other, but nevertheless, they were both unable to pay their debt back. Friends, the key to... Uh, Simon's failed spiritual understanding was that he refused to believe that he was spiritually bankrupt. And he refused to believe that he was spiritually bankrupt because he believed that because there were other people who had a greater debt to pay than him, that somehow meant that he wasn't actually bankrupt and in need of a savior. And friends, the easiest way to deceive yourself in your standing before God is to assume that simply because you can find somebody who's behavior is worse than yours, that somehow that makes you acceptable to God. Because there's somebody who isn't as bad as you, somehow makes you acceptable. Friends, all of us at different points in our lives have self-justified ourselves by taking comfort in the fact that we are morally superior to others. We're not as bad as them. We don't live in Gloucester. <laughs> we're better than them it's like it doesn't matter how bad I may be I'm, I'm not as bad as them we've worked hard we live in a better town we've got the nicer house we're better educated like if Jesus were going to come here he'd definitely stay here definitely no question because like we're more we're more worthy we're more deserving 
And friends, the self-righteous behavior is found everywhere. Everywhere. Including in maximum security prisons. You'd think the one place you wouldn't find self-righteousness would be in a maximum security prison, right? But I just want to tell you you're wrong. When I um, ministered in America, I stayed in America for two years, part of the work that I did was in some maximum security prisons. And if you ever do like Christian ministry in a maximum security prison, when you're going to maximum security prison, the thing that you are always thinking is, I wonder what they did. I wonder what they did. I wonder what they did. But you never say that. It's like, like totally inappropriate to ask the person why they are in prison. But you are thinking it, but you don't say it. You just kind of go in and you, you're warm and nice. And you're thinking, I wonder what they did. But the really interesting thing is, if you work in max, maximum security prisons, over a bit of time is, the guys learn to trust you. And then what they do is, they, they come and tell you what they didn't do. <laughs> they'll, they'll just kind of sidle up and say, hey, I'm not in here for rape. Hey, pastor, I want you to know, I'm not in here for child abuse. And like when it first happens, you think, what's going on? What's happening? And then you realize, oh, there, 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 there's kind of, there, there's a moral ladder even within a maximum security prison. What they're wanting to say is, I'm not bad as so-and-so. They're people worse than me. And friends, we all do it. We all think, because we haven't failed the entrance exam to heaven quite as badly as somebody else, that somehow that makes us acceptable. But friends, the Bible is clear. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the Bible clearly and repeatedly says that if you want to discern your true state before God, don't compare yourself to others. Compare yourself to God. Compare yourself to the one who lives in unapproachable light and is holy, holy, holy. Only when you see God clearly will you be able to discern your true state before God. The third different belief system was in need of a savior versus self-reliance. Because this wayward woman knew she was bankrupt before God, she knew that her only hope was found in connecting with the Savior and receiving mercy. She had no problem being convinced that she could only be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. She was guilty and, in, and deserving judgment, and she knew that she had no bargaining chips before God. Her only hope was to be saved by grace and sheer grace alone. Not so with Simon. Simon's wrong view of Jesus led to a wrong view of himself, which means he was happy to continue to drift along on his own performance, wrongly assuming that he didn't have a need of a savior. Wrongly assuming that he wasn't bankrupt before a holy God. Now their wrong, their differing belief then leads to a differing set of behaviors. Our belief system always informs our behavior and not the other way around. There are three areas where they behave differently. The first area of difference behavior is public versus private acknowledgement of Christ. It's like Simon's very happy to kind of explore the issues of who Jesus is in the privacy of his own home. But there's no ways that he's going public with this. There's no ways that he's acknowledging that he's a Christ follower in a public setting. There's no ways he's going to witness about Christ. Not so this woman. This woman essentially breaks into a home in a room filled with complete strangers 
and she is happy to fully identify with Christ. She's very happy to acknowledge that she is a Christ follower. The second area of different behavior is what I'm calling extravagant devotion versus respectful dishonoring. Extravagant devotion versus respectful dishonoring. If you don't really know who Jesus is, and if you don't really have a first-hand experience of the wonder of the gospel and how precious grace is, then this woman's behavior is completely embarrassing, right? This woman breaks in. She begins to weep and weep. And like if you're a guy reading the story, most of us guys, if the woman is crying so profusely, if she's like heaving, that's just like one of the most hardest moments to deal with, right? It's like you're crying profusely. Can, 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 you, can you like... Can you stop this? <laughs> or can you let me know when this is over and then we can engage in a conversation because like tears and hair and like, well, I, I'm sorry, I, 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 I don't know how to deal with this. I don't have that emotional range. Judge me, but I just don't. I just like so many tears. Where does that come from? You've just done more tears in five minutes than I've done in my whole lifetime. It's just like, this is incredible. And so this is like so this is so embarrassing. What are you doing? This is a public setting. Nobody knows you. Can you just change to decaf? Can you stop this? Like you do this at home, but don't don't bust into other people's homes. What are you doing? This is so embarrassing. Don't you know hasn't anybody told you this isn't the way you behave? You don't behave like this in a public place. What is your problem? This is so inappropriate. Behave like Simon. Simon's appropriate, right? I mean, that's how you behave. You invite him around for a meal. You, 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 you're more emotionally controlled. Why are you behaving like this? What, what's your problem? Friends, can I ask you this, this morning, who are you more like? Who, who do you more identify with? How, how, how do you feel about people when they like passionately worship God? Do you internally you just think, that person's a bit of a lunatic. Emotionally unhinged. What are you like? Are you a worshipper? Or are you like, man, they sing that song again. Like, don't they know it's like the literary festival? I've got like things to do. Like Hillary Clinton's coming. I need to get out of here. <laughs> How do you handle people that really worship Jesus? That, are, that really love Jesus? But unhinged, but immature. Bit of a loser. I mean, those are the kind of people who really worship God. I mean, if you've got it together, you, you know how to tuck in your emotions. We're not going to be overt about this, right? And it seems like Simon's got it all in control until we realize that actually Simon doesn't do the most basic things you meant to do when you have a visitor in that time and in that culture. In that time and in that culture, there were three things that somebody would do if they had a guest at the house. The first thing that they would do that when they arrived is that they would kiss them as a sign of respect. The second thing that they would have done is anointed them with oil. This is because 
the Middle Eastern climate is like the climate I'm from. It's There's a lot of sun. I know that's not something you guys are familiar with here, but <laughs> when you get sun on your face, it can, it can dry it out. And so when people arrived, they would have walked, they would have been in the beating sun, and you just put some oil on their face, um, not to be religious, but actually just to look after their skin. It was a means of looking after them. And then you would provide water to wash their feet because they would have walked on open sandals and there weren't any sewers or stuff like that. So everything just kind of flooded out onto those open streets, which were pretty nasty and dirty. And so you need to provide water for them to clean their feet. And what happens is that Simon doesn't do any of that. Simon doesn't do any of that. He treats Jesus worse than you would treat a normal guest. And friends, let's think about this. Jesus isn't some random teacher or some quasi-prophet. Jesus is the true Messiah. He's the God who's become flesh to dwell amongst us. He is the King of glory. He's the King of glory and He's treated worse than a common guest. Friends, when you look at this passage, there is utter outrageous behavior. But the utter outrageous behavior isn't from the woman, it is from Simon. Which is why Jesus needs to say to Simon, Simon, look at the woman. Look at her. Because that's so typical of elites, isn't it? If you're an elite, you don't even notice other people that aren't at your same level. So Jesus says, look at her. She's invisible to you. She doesn't even exist. But she's actually treated me way better than you. She's actually given, she's actually anointed me. She's actually washed my feet. She's actually kissed me. You've done none of this. Friends, you know what the most chilling thing about Luke 7 is? Is that Jesus notices every slight. And this isn't a parable. He's not telling a parable. He's not telling a story. These are actual events that actually took place. Simon, you're so in control. You're so successful. You've got it all worked out. But the way that you are treating me is radically disrespectful. You've given me absolutely the bare minimum. Friends, can I ask you this morning, how are you treating Jesus? How are you treating Jesus? Honestly, does Jesus get your heart? Does Jesus get your devotion? Does Jesus get your affections? Or do you kind of like rock into church and think, well, I'm making my monthly attendance at church and I really hope that the leaders notice me because I'm actually quite a big deal around here. People know me. It's a literature festival. I had lots of other good things I could have done. I hope they appropriately impressed that I'm here. How do you do worship? Is the highlight of worship for you when it ends? That was good. That was a short worship. I'm glad they kept that tight. That's good. How do you relate to the preaching of God's word? Is it, when is this guy going to end? Doesn't he know we teach a bit shorter here? Still got a couple of points to go. What are you doing? Cut it down. I've got to go to breakfast. I've got something else planned. And is your Sunday attendance just really a metaphor for the rest of your life? You'd like really get the PhD 
of giving the bare minimums to Jesus. You're like a master at it. You can do a master class of giving the bare minimum. Jesus notices. You may be able to fake it. People may love you and be super respectful of you. But Jesus notices when you slight him. The final behavior difference is what I'm calling God versus guest. God versus guest. Friends, there's a massive difference between relating to Jesus as the Lord of glory and simply relating to him as a guest. I'm staying with Howard and Naomi, and they've been really kind to host me while I'm staying here, and I'm staying in one of their kids' rooms who's now away at university. And could you imagine if... uh, when they drive me back to Heathrow on the way home, they're just saying, like, you know what? It was so awesome having Stephen in our home. We, like, we like really loved it. And it's like, how was like, it's totally, you know, it was like, what a phenomenal visit. Really wonderful man of God. It's like, you know what? They, like, start discussing things. We kind of want to remember him more than just, like, the thing. You know what we're going to do? I think, I think we should turn that room into, like, a, like a Stephen Rain shrine. <laughs> we're going to put some, like, like, um, you know, some photos up there and, you know, we'll have like a, a copy of the sermon he preached on the Sunday that you can play. And so like when the kids come home and they go, oh, no, 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 don't go there. It's like, what do you mean don't go there? I'm going to my room. No, 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 that used to be your room. It used to be your room. But Stephen Rain came to visit and now we've, now we've turned it into a little shrine for him. And they're like, oh, damn, damn, what have you been smoking? Are you mad? What's going on? Because of course nobody does that, right? You have a guest stay with you and then what happens? The moment the guest leaves, the house just goes right back to the way it was before. Nothing changes. It's like you're inconvenienced for 24 hours or 48 hours and then it goes straight back to the way it was. Which is exactly what Simon does. Simon is inconvenienced. I had Jesus around for a meal. I really regretted it. This woman bust in. She started crying and guests got upset. It was a complete mess, but it's fine. He's gone and it's back to normal. But not so this woman. This woman doesn't relate to Jesus as a guest. She relates to him as God. And we know that she doesn't go back to normal because she pours out her perfume. She pours out her perfume. And this was a massive deal. What, what, what did this perfume jar signify? Well, prostitutes at the time wore an alabaster jar around for three reasons. The first reason was... It was a means of advertising that they were open for business. There was no Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. How did you work out who the prostitute was? Well, she was wearing the alabaster jar of perfume. It it was a means of advertisement. It was a means of identifying her. The second reason why she had this perfume was, of course, it was perfume that would allure her clients, draw her clients and give give the smell of, of, of luxury and wonder and enticement. And finally, the perfume served as a means of cleansing. Because, of course, when you're involved in that kind of activity, after you were involved in that activity, you just felt really dirty. And the perfume was something to help you make yourself feel clean after you had felt that you were defiled. But 
in encountering Jesus, this woman knew that she would never need her jar of perfume again. And so she pours out her perfume. No longer was she going to engage in that activity. No longer did she need to be cleansed because she knew that Christ was going to cleanse her. Christ was going to forgive her sin. And so she could pour it out fully. As she poured out her perfume, little did she know that what she was actually doing was anointing Christ, preparing Christ for his death. He was able to look at her and say, your sins are forgiven. Because he was going to be whipped and beaten and flogged and nailed on a cross and cry out, Eloi, Eloi, Lapa Sabathini, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he cried out, why have you forsaken me? Because he was forsaken so that this woman would never be forsaken. He was forsaken. He was punished so that she could be forgiven. And because of that, she could pour out her perfume on Christ. Friends, can I ask us the question this morning? Who are you more like? Honestly, as we read this passage, who are you more like? Are you more like Simon? Or are you more like the wayward woman? Who do you more identify with? Which one has more data points that, yeah, 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 actually, that, that's me? Friends, if you're here this morning and you're saying, Stephen, man, didn't expect this. But if I'm honest, I'm more like Simon. I'm more like Simon. What do I do? Friends, the beautiful thing of this passage is that the way to be transformed out of Simon-like behavior isn't by pulling up your socks and trying harder, but rather by receiving the mercy and grace of God. It is the only, it's only the mercy and grace of God that can catalyze you to to truly love God. She loved much because she was forgiven much. Listen to what J.C. Ryle said a hundred years ago on this passage, over a hundred years ago. He said, She had been much forgiven, and so she loved much. Her love was the effect of her forgiveness, not the cause. The consequence of her forgiveness, not the condition. The result of her forgiveness, not the reason. The fruit of her forgiveness, not the root. Would the Pharisee know why this woman showed so much love? It was because she felt much forgiven. Would he know why he himself had shown his guests so little love? It was because he felt under no obligation, had no consciousness of having obtained forgiveness, had no sense of debt to Christ. Forever let the mighty principle be laid down by our Lord in this passage, abide in our memories, and sink into our hearts. It is one of the great cornerstones of the whole gospel. It is one of the master keys to unlock the secrets of the kingdom of God. 
The only way to make men and women holy is to teach and preach free and full forgiveness through Jesus Christ. The secret of being holy ourselves is to know and feel that Christ has pardoned our sin. Peace with God is the only route that will bear the fruit of holiness. Forgiveness must go before sanctification. We shall do nothing till we are reconciled to God. This is the first step in religion. We must work from life, not for life. Our best works before we are justified are little better than splendid sins. We must live by faith in the Son of God, and then, and not until till then, shall we walk in His ways. Listen to this. The heart that has experienced the pardoning love of Christ is the heart which loves Christ and strives to glorify Him. If you're more like Simon today, what you need more than anything else is to experience the pardoning love of Christ. Experience the pardoning love of Christ. It's not until you have felt and experienced that love that you will begin to adore Christ and worship Him and truly and genuinely follow Him. Let's come to the Lord in prayer. Lord, I want to thank you for this congregation. I want to thank you for each person here. And I want to thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that you are the incredible liberator. You are the incredible forgiver. You're the one who can come to somebody whose life is filled with brokenness and say your sins are forgiven. Because you yourself were sacrificed on our behalf. And Lord, I pray for any here that if they're honest, their lives are more like Simon than they are like this wayward woman. Lord, I pray that this morning that they would get a revelation of the mercy and grace of God. They would get a revelation of the reality of your pardon and effect upon their lives. And Lord, I pray that that effect on their life would be transformatory and it would transform them from just giving you the leftovers of their life to really living for you and glorifying you and honoring you and truly putting you first. So Lord, I pray that as we come to break bread together, Lord, I pray that you would bring revelation of your love and revelation of your grace that would soften our hearts to cause us to respond to you in faith and to truly live for you and truly live for your glory. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.